The FT Weekend Podcast, supported by Ledger, the secure way to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto. From beginner to an expert trader, Ledger has everything you need to buy and grow your crypto securely, all in one place. Reclaim power over your money. Learn more at ledger.com. Karina Urbach is a self-confessed bad cook. And that might be why it took her so long to realize that there was something strange about her grandmother's cookbook. What did you hear about the book as you were growing up? Did she talk about it? What did you know? Well, I didn't know much. I mean, I knew we had these two cookbooks on our shelves and one was um, with her name on the title and the other one was by this um, man called Rudolf Rösch. And um, I I never really asked the right questions and it took um, years, um, decades really, until I found out that um, this book was taken from her and um, that uh, a male author published it until 1966 under his name. That's Karina. Her grandmother, Alice Erbach, wrote a cookbook that was extremely popular in Vienna in the 1930s. But Alice's family was Jewish, and when the Nazis came to power in 1938, that cookbook was stolen from her. It was stripped of all of its Jewish references, and it was republished under a totally different name. So they Aryanized some of the recipes. For example, they erased completely um, Jewish-sounding recipes like the omelette Rothschild, which was now an omelette nature, and even the Jaffa tart was um, uh, suddenly taken out of the book because uh, Jaffa perhaps sounded too Jewish as well. So it, it was really bizarre. It was bizarre. Over the course of her life, once she learned her book was stolen, Alice tried to get her authorship rights restored, but it never happened. Just recently, in 2020, that's 85 years after the cookbook was originally published, Karina finally got Alice's name restored to its rightful place. Today, I have Karina Erbach on to talk about how her research vindicated her grandmother and how it's paving the way for other people looking to restore intellectual rights. Then, we bring you a snippet from the recent USFT Weekend Festival, a conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Elizabeth Strout. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Yes. Let me tell you a little bit about me. Mm-hmm. I'm 95 years of age <laughs> and nearly six months more. And I come from Vienna, and I had the Vienna, Viennish famous cooking school. Alice was born in 1886 to a wealthy Jewish family in Vienna. Here she is just a few years before she died on the PBS cooking show Over Easy. And when I was 70 and I was in America, I retired. And when I 90, I started again mm-hmm. in the work. For Mrs. S. Hawkins. And you know what? You are 95 now. And, you're, 95. Still, and you're still teaching. That's what's yeah. exciting. I'm still teaching. From this cooking school that, um, where she taught at 95, she was discovered and then appeared on um, American television as the oldest um, cooking teacher in the world. And um, wow. that, was, that was wonderful that she got some recognition at the end of her life. So yeah. she, she, she loved that. So, Karina, I would love to hear about your grandmother's early life. Like, how did she even start cooking? 
well, she was a remarkable lady. She grew up in the Habsburg monarchy and um, in a very rich Jewish family, a bit of a spoiled girl um, who was uh, dreamy. But then um, after the First World War, when the family lost all its money, she suddenly had to work. And she um, remembered that she had one big passion, and that was cooking. So it's the 1920s. Alice is living in Vienna. Her husband dies, and she needs to support her family. So she sets up a cooking school. So, um, yes, she had a very big reputation, and she also invented catering or brought it to Vienna. And that, and that was something, you know, the newspaper said, oh, we are getting Americanized now. People bring food to the homes and so on. So, yes, she did four-course dinners and brought, I mean, things that are natural to us today, completely natural, but that was very modern in the 1920s. So, yes, she was very, very successful with her catering school and her uh, cooking school. Alice was actually kind of an innovator in her time. In the years between World War I and World War II, she was giving lectures across Vienna about new ways to eat, like vegetarian, and she was publishing cookbooks. In 1935, she published a really popular one. It was called, This is How We Cook in Vienna, with an exclamation mark. Was it Austrian cooking or was it kind of Jewish Austrian cooking? No, the book was very international because the Habsburg monarchy, of course, had so many influences. It had, you know, French influences. It had uh, Italian, um, Czechoslovakian. So, no, it was a very um, international cosmopolitan book. And all, she says that also in the introduction of the cookbook, that food is something global and there's a mixture of wonderful ideas. So, um, yes, she had uh, Jewish recipes in there, too. One of Alice's signature dishes was the bridge bison, or bridge bites. It was this mini sandwich on a cocktail stick, and it was designed so that if you're playing the card game bridge, you could eat with one hand and not have to interrupt the game. It was hugely popular. But things changed, and they changed very quickly. In 1938, three years after the book's publication, the Nazis invaded Austria. Here's Alice talking about actually seeing Hitler parade into Vienna. Yeah, well, of course, um, in, in 1938, that was um, a horrible time um, when the Nazis um, annexed Austria. And um, and she she tried everything to get to America because my father had already made it to, to Portland, Oregon um, as a student and um, wanted to get her and um, his brother out. And, um, and he couldn't get an affidavit. That was something you needed at the time. So um, uh, Alice then goes to England and um, her younger son um, gets arrested and is sent to Dachau concentration camp. It was a horrible time. Her son got out, but her three sisters were murdered in the camps. Alice could never write about it, and she barely spoke about it. Karina knows that she took care of refugee children in England through that time, and she knows that she mourned her home. Alice felt Viennese. Her sisters and her homeland, all of it had been taken from her. By 1949, the war was over. Alice had finally moved to the U.S. and she had a chance to go back to Vienna. And she was she was very happy to be back in Vienna, but then she was shocked when she saw this um, book, her book, in the shop window. Just to reiterate, 
1949, four years after the war. Alice is back in Vienna, and as she's walking past a bookstore, she sees her book for sale in the window. But now, it isn't her book. Instead of her name on the cover, it has the name of this other guy, Rudolf Reusch. It's still called This Is How We Cook in Vienna. It still has photos of her hands, which illustrated the book when she first published it. And most of the recipes are the same. But leafing through it, she finds some noticeable changes, presumably put in by this Rudolf Reusch. He nazified the book, so he took out all the international um, recipes. He took out um, passages where Alice, for example, talks about how to treat your mate. You know, she was very um, good about this. Of course, he took that out because the Nazis had slave labor. You know, they were exploiting um, uh, Polish women or, or, or Czech women, so they didn't want to hear, be nice to your mate. So these things were completely erased. So what happened next, Karina? How did she try to prove that the book was hers? Well, yes, she she writes to her publisher after she has seen this book in 49 and says, well, um, you know, uh, I'm still alive and it would be nice to um, get the, the book back. Can, can I now get my book back? She writes him um, about 17 letters in the 1950s, always um, yeah, in a very polite way, begging in a, <laughs> for it. I mean, it's really, uh, it's, it's heartbreaking because she then goes back again and again to Vienna and the publisher has all kinds of excuses because she had um, submitted two more manuscripts in 38 that um, he also publishes under the name Rudolf Rush, you know, um, and he doesn't give her back anything. He always has excuses. She says to him, but I do understand that during the Nazi time, you couldn't publish it under my name, but um, but now, of course, you could. And um, yeah, he, he fobs off. Alice's publisher, Hermann Junk, and the publishing house he worked for refused to give Alice her authorship back for years. In the 1970s, Junk even published a piece that said he'd had to find someone to update Alice's recipes because they weren't good enough. They were too rich. He also said the book had been unpopular when it came out, that Rudolf Reusch fixed it. But here's the thing. No one even knows if Rudolf Reusch existed. So was he even real? Do you know? For sure. So that's something I've been wondering about. And I phoned so many Rudolf Rushes in the telephone book <laughs> because I saw perhaps they're named after their grandfather or something. Right. But no, I couldn't find anyone um, who uh, could remember this cook, Rudolf Rush. And I think that the publishing house might have invented him. Um, mm. And um, of course, I asked the lady who, who runs this publishing house now, and um, she said, no, he existed, but she didn't want to give me any information about him. Wow, even now. No, that was, <laughs> that's the only mystery that I haven't solved yet. Alice tried one final time in the 1980s to get the publishing house to restore her name to the book. They said, you know, we, we don't know what this is about. We have um, no material on this um, case because our archives were lost. So that was their general accuse, uh, excuse. Um, we lost our archives. Then, in 1983, Alice died. She was 97, and she still hadn't gotten her authorship back. But in 2014, Karina, who's a Cambridge historian that actually specializes in the Nazi period, started digging into her family history. Because they were a little famous, there was a lot of history to find. 
So she collected family letters and newspaper clippings and National Archive materials, and she published her own book in 2020. It's called Alice's Book, How the Nazis Stole My Grandmother's Cookbook. And that seemed to work. And of course, um, when my book came out in Germany and it caused a bit of a um, scandal, um, then they said, oh, um, yes, we have found our archives again. Sorry. So we do have archives. But I mean, lots of uh, German publishing houses have that excuse. They always say, oh, it's, uh, these things got lost in the second book. We're very sorry. So your book is published. This book we're discussing now, Alice's book, it was published in German. And then suddenly Alice's rights are restored. And the business sort of continued to profit off of her work long after the Holocaust was over, a Jewish woman's work. I guess I'm I'm curious sort of how you feel about it. Well, you know, I, I did feel a, a bit angry, to be honest, but I had to suppress that because I'm a historian. I mean, historian first, granddaughter second. Mm-hmm. So when I wrote the book, I didn't want to emote. I wanted to write it in a very detached way. Um, and um, I one chapter about um, the publishing house was a bit angry. And my German editor said, oh, well, you have to um, cut certain sentences out because we might get sued. So she was very worried that the publishing house would react badly and it would be a, a lawsuit coming up. And and then, of course, um, the opposite happened because when the book came out in Germany, you know, the, the Spiegel, our political magazine, ran a big story and, and suddenly the publishing house, I think, got a bit scared. Karina has been clear this entire time that she wasn't looking for money, just credit. And can I ask, why didn't you want, why didn't you ask for money? Well, I thought that would have been um, very, it would have sounded bitter or um, it wasn't, it wasn't my place to, to ask for. I mean, Alice could have asked for it, but not me. I, I thought, um, and then, of course, um, if I had asked for money, then, of course, they might have gone to court and wouldn't have given back um, the the authorship to her. And and that was more important that she's on the cover again. Yeah. Oh, I want you to have money for, <laughs> for your family. For well, that. you know, I'm a poor <laughs> academic, so anytime. Right, <laughs> so no, so far, no. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that, right? Happy ending? Well, not quite. Because it turns out there are a lot more Jewish authors whose books were stolen during the Holocaust. Famous books, books that Karina herself assumed were written by German authors. And what Karina hopes is that her work will lead to more rights being restored. I thought she was unique, you know. I thought, oh, perhaps um, this just happened to her because she was a woman. But no, I mean, they, the Nazis did it to other Jewish authors. And I found a colleague, for example, who um, worked on Josef Löbel, who was a Jewish author in the 1930s, a man who wrote the the most important standard work on um, family health. And I even know that book. I mean, I had it when I was growing up in Germany. And I couldn't believe it that this had been stolen from him by some um, German um, Nazi medic, um, some some guy who built his whole post-war career on this book. And I, I hadn't got, yeah, and, and so we find more and more cases. Right. And that, that's wonderful because, um, of course, I want to incentivize uh, other historians to look for them. And, and so we could at least give back these books to the authors posthumously. 
Karina, thank you so much for uh, your work and for being on the show. This was so fascinating. Oh, thank you, Lila. That was wonderful for me to talk with you about it. Thank you. A beautiful written piece on Karina's grandmother's story by Christian House will be published in the FT Weekend magazine in the coming weeks. In the meantime, we've put the link to the review of Alice's book in the show notes. Elizabeth Strout is the kind of novelist whose characters are very present in her life. They're with her, or they appear to her. Like in her book, Olive Kitteridge, there's this story called Starving, about a couple where the woman has anorexia. That couple, only the woman that I saw, the young woman I saw, was not ill, but there was this couple on the subway across from me, probably five or six years earlier than that story ever showed up. And that was exactly what the couple was wearing. She was wearing that little denim jacket with the fake fur, and she was sitting on her boyfriend's lap on the subway, and she was saying, you're smelling me, I know you're smelling me. And I just thought, oh my God, they are so adorable. And that was it, they got off, or I got off. And then six years later, or seven, whenever I, I need, I thought, oh right, let's get a couple. And then I thought, boom, there they are. That's Elizabeth speaking to my colleague Rebecca Rose, who's the editor of FT Globetrotter, on stage recently at the U.S. FT Weekend Festival. Rebecca is a big fan of Elizabeth's books, which have won a ton of awards, including a Pulitzer. Much of Elizabeth's work revolves around two worlds. There's the Olive Kitteridge world, about this prickly woman from coastal Maine. She's written two books in that world, and there was an HBO adaptation of Olive starring Frances McDormand that won eight Emmys. And then there's the world of Lucy Barton, who's a writer who lives in New York. There are three books in her world, and a new one is coming out soon. Here's Rebecca in conversation with Elizabeth Strout. I'm feeling very privileged to talk to you, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for coming today. It's really my pleasure to be here. Um, Elizabeth, you're really the most amazing writer of character I can think of. Um, And I'm sure all of you agree it's impossible to imagine a world without Olive Kitteridge or Lucy Barton. In Olive and Lucy, you've created real, complicated, fascinating, endearing, and at times maddening heroines. And best of all, they're heroines of a certain age, which is a rarity. There's so much I want to talk to you about today, but I'm going to dive straight in with my first question, which may be a tricky one for you to answer. How did Olive and Lucy come about? Did they come to you bit by bit? Were they perfectly fully formed? They came to me very differently, actually. Um, Olive came to me, you know, I was unloading the dishwasher and, or loading it, or it was something I was doing with the dishwasher. And there was, I could just often feel a presence behind me. And I, I mean, I don't want you to think that I'm psychotic. I mean, I knew that, I knew it wasn't real. I'm just telling you that I could feel a huge presence behind me and I could hear in this woman's head, the words going, it's high time everyone left. <laughs> and I realized I have got to get that down. And so I went immediately and wrote down the scene of Olive at her son's wedding, which was the first Olive story that I wrote. So she really arrived pretty fully formed. I mean, she just showed up. Boom. <laughs> and then Lucy Barton was really, really different. Like, Lucy's voice came to me as um, like a really fine gold thread coming from, you know, the ceiling or from the sky. And... And so I thought, what, what is this? So I had to keep trying to hear this fine gold thread, which is her voice, basically. And then I, I wrote 
just a few pages of it. And for some reason that I still can't understand because I never gave my editor anything early, never did, but there was an attachment to some email that I had and she wrote back and she said, I love this, you must write this. So both of uh, Olive and Lucy come from Maine, um, Lucy from Amgash, um, a poor farming town, and Olive from a seaside town. Would you say that Olive and Lucy are really products of Maine? And perhaps you could talk a little bit about, for people who may not know, what is the spirit of Maine? Well, Olive definitely comes from Maine, and she's very proud of coming from Maine. She's one of those Mainers that's very proud of coming from Maine, as many Mainers are, and I guess should be, but... Um, Maine is physically beautiful, um, absolutely gorgeous. Um, there's many different kinds of Maine, and, and there's a reticence to the people. Mm. Um, and Lucy Barton comes from the Midwest, but she comes from culturally a similar thing. Because as Lucy's mother says to her, our forefathers came here from England, first to Provincetown, mm. and then the brave ones went west. <laughs> yeah. So Lucy's mother also feels, a, you know, a kinship with her ancestors who were brave enough to go west. But the two places are physically very different. I think that, well, they are products of where they come from. There's a universality to Olive and Lucy. And I was thinking the other day that um, I'm sure that everybody sometimes feels that they're feeling a bit Olive <laughs> or, or quiet and introspective like Lucy. And, and I think for, for men and women alike, there's something, you know, that everyone can recognise in these characters. Yeah, I hope so. Um, and I sort of assume so, just because especially with Olive Kittredge, when I first went out on the road with it, it was so interesting to meet so many people who would just very cheerfully say, oh, I'm Olive. <laughs> and I go, okay. <laughs> or, you know, some husband would say, well, now I understand my wife better. She's Olive. And they would say it like they were happy to understand something. And I thought, that's so interesting. I was thinking about in Anything Is Possible, how you zero in on many of the characters we meet in My Name Is Lucy Barton. And I imagine in my head, and I'm sure you, this is not the case, at home you have one of those detective boards, like a detective show with little bits of string, joining up all the characters, because yeah. it's so intertwined. How do you manage I this cast? Yeah, I, I, it's all in my head. It's all in my head. Um, and, and my house is messy, <laughs> just so you know. It's like, I always remember reading an essay where some woman said you can either have a clean house or you can be a writer. <laughs> so I guess that, I mean, it's not, it's not, dirty it's just messy <laughs> all these characters are in my head and as I was writing my name as Lucy Barton I thought oh well what did happen to Kathy nicely where is she now and so I would move around to the other side of this table that I work on and I would write a scene about where Kathy nicely was right then or Patty nicely or her sister or you know all these different people would come to me as I was writing the book and it was almost like a constellation like that's how I saw it as here's a light and there's the light and let's get Charlie, you know, Macaulay in there and then he'll connect with. So it was all in my head. And, and by the time I was done writing, my name is Lucy Barton. I realized I practically had another book almost done, you know, waiting in the wings. Yeah. Right. Cause I had written so many scenes. I felt uh, so sad when I finished the Lucy books and the Olive books. And I wondered, um, do people ask you, will you bring them back, you know, or do you, how do you decide, how did you decide to revisit Olive or, right. or Lucy? Well, Olive just showed up again. <laughs> um, that time I was in a cafe in Oslo 
And I was just checking my emails and she just showed up. She just literally showed up. That time she was getting out of her car. She had a cane. She was walking to the marina. And that story was written by the end of that weekend. And I thought, (laughs) all right, let's go. So um, my name is Lucy Barton was adapted to stage um, with Laura Linney. And obviously Olive Ketteridge became the HBO series with... um, Francis McDormand. And I wondered if I may ask how it feels to see an actor embody your characters. And do you have sort of protective urges um, about handing over these, these characters in that way? It's just so strange. I can't really even describe what it's like. Um, first of all, the only reason that they both did that was because I trusted them. Because, you know, otherwise, you know, I'm not a person who's looking to have my stuff made into movies. Mm. Um, or plays. And it's just so, it's just so weird to watch it. You know, it mm. feels like it doesn't really have much to do with me, except mm. that I know the words, you know. But when you think of Olive or when she pops up again, you're not thinking of Frances McDormand now. No. You're thinking of your Olive. No, my, yeah. my Olive was already entrenched in me <laughs> as my Olive. And I mean, I think she did a great job, a wonderful job. But no, my Olive, when I went back to rewrite, I mean, to write again, Olive again, she was, she was still my Olive. Um, I did want to ask whether you would consider creating another character like Lucy and Olive. Do you think that that's going to, she's going to appear suddenly? I, I think that, um, I, first of all, I don't know. I have no idea. But I think that, you know, I, I have created enough characters to last me the rest of my life. <laughs> because I can go back to any of my characters happily. Mm. Um, you know. So maybe a minor character might... Yeah. Pop up, come to the surface. Yeah. Something like that. I hope so. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you, will we meet Olive or Lucy again? Can you tell us? Um, yes, I have a book coming out in September called Lucy by the Sea. Can you tell us a little more? Oh, I'm just not sure if I'm supposed to. But <laughs> okay. well, I think, I think so. we've already got an image in our head of what Lucy by the Sea well, can mean. It sounds William, you know, anyway, I hope hope my agent's not mad at me, but... <laughs> Lucy doesn't go to live with Olive, does she? No, she doesn't go to live with Olive, but she goes to the, the town where Olive lives. William has a connection through one of his previous girlfriends who was married to Bob Burgess, who was living in Crosby, Maine. And so when the pandemic hits, there's a house in Crosby, Maine that William takes Lucy off to to save her life. That's unbelievably exciting. I'm just so thrilled to hear that there's another book coming out. And that's in September? September. Fantastic. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much for coming. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Please do share the show with your friends and on social media. If you like listening, that is the best way to support us. It really helps people find the show. Also, keep in touch. Let me know what you're reading or watching or thinking about. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rack. Also in the show notes is a link to the best offers available on a subscription to the FT, including 50% off a digital sub. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekendpodcast. Make sure to use that link. 
I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my extraordinary team. Katia Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our assistant producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko with original music by Metaphor Music. Zoe Sullivan is our contributing producer, and Topher Forges is our executive producer. And thanks go as ever to Cheryl Brumley and Renee Kaplan. Take care, and we will find each other again next week. As the world changes, so does the tech we need to secure what is important to us. And if you own crypto assets, you need a safe place to store your funds. At Ledger, we provide a secure and straightforward way to buy, exchange and grow your crypto. Whether you're an expert trader or just starting on your crypto journey, Ledger has everything you need all in one place. Ledger, the place to buy and grow your crypto securely. Reclaim power over your money. Learn more at ledger.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.